we've been looking, uh, the last few chapters of this book, looking into our origin stories. Um, uh, we look back at the creation and the garden story. We looked at how our ancestors um, uh, explained how we got to where we are today. Um, and much of it had to do with rivalries, right? It was, in the beginning, there was God versus, versus man. There was then man versus man. And, and the weeks, uh, this week's chapter dealt with the story of Joseph and his brothers. But we've dealt with Cain and Abel. We've had Sarah and Hagar, uh, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, uh, Rachel and Leah. Matt shared a little bit about those last week. But those are these rivals that we had in our story of origin. This is our past. This is our, our faith story. And we all have stories of former or present rivalries. But I want to return to a story in the New Testament. One of the stories that we are, uh, most of us are very familiar with, whether you grew up in church or not. You've heard the phrase, the Good Samaritan, right? It's like an actual law uh, in our country. But, but this time, I want us to kind of go in hoping and asking for a, a fresh new perspective, a new way of hearing today's story. So first, I want to give some context to this moment. Um, uh, We're in the New Testament. Jesus has begun his ministry. He has his his group of disciples he's walking around with, and the number is continuing to grow and grow and grow. And um, for those of you that didn't know, Jesus was a Jew. And so he's in this moment where he's traveling north of Jerusalem. Um, And he's now headed south. He needs to head to Jerusalem. There's a big appointment he had there with the Romans, uh, dealt with a cross kind of a thing. And so he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he has to go through this territory um, where there's this city in this region known as Samaria. And uh, everyone in that time, and you might know, have heard the stories that Jews and Samaritans, they did not get along. Like there was a rivalry there, and it was um, racially charged um, there was this hostility towards one another. Um, the Jews would consider the Samaritans to be like half-breeds, what they call them. Um, and then there's this, this religiously charged hatred, too. They served a different god, or they worshipped differently. They worshipped on that mountain, and our fathers, they worshipped on this mountain. Um, the closest example that I've seen and read and people have talked about when they refer to this story um, for today would be the, the American Christian and, and, and then a Muslim. Um, and both of those have racially and religiously charged hostility towards one another. Not everyone, but, but many people have this deep bias and, and possibly hatred for the other. It's no more evident that we see it today when people can excuse and justify the actions and the behavior of one president because of his color of skin and call him a Christian and take another president and solely based on the color of his skin, call him a Muslim. This is a, a unifying piece for much of America. You see, we can't openly hate people of color. Or we're not supposed to. And it, but it's a, it's a social, social norm to hate Muslims, right? Because of 9-11 or, or the, some fear of the unknown we have. So if I can't hate him for being black, I call him a Muslim. And then it's okay to hate because we can unify under that. And that's kind of like this moment that's happening here. The Jews in this time, they hated Samaritans. It was socially acceptable to hate them. They worshipped a different God. They, and it wasn't just on Facebook, right? But everywhere they were allowed to say it. Jews and Samaritans did not go to church together on Sundays. And even the disciples that were with Jesus, they didn't like the Samaritans. And again, back to the context, Jesus is sending out his disciples in this moment. And the story goes that he's sending out the 72. And he's sending them out two by two. So in groups of two, they're going door to door, telling the story. 
And in verse 8 of chapter 10 in Luke, it says this. Jesus is talking to the 72. He says, when you enter a town and you're welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and you are not welcomed, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet, be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. And the 72 returned with joy and they said, they're like, we got this, right? Lord, even the demons submit to your name. In other words, they're saying, there's, there's not a problem, right, Jesus? I mean, we're going to go, and by me, we, we mean you, right? There's no problem. If they don't like what we have to say, uh, you can smite them, right? We'll, we'll get rid of those. You know, we're, we're about to head into Samaria, this area. Let's, let's, they're going to reject us. And in verse 18, Jesus replies and says, listen, guys, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And I've given you the authority to trample on snakes and and scorpions and to overcome the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, he says, guys, don't don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names have been written in heaven. And something interesting happens in this moment. Jesus calls out a few cities for rejecting his teachings. And he doesn't list names of cities in Samaria, but instead... he, he lists off these cities in, that were Jewish, right? He was sort of foreshadowing the ones that would end up rejecting his teachings. The people that thought they were the chosen people. The people that thought they were in. He says, verse 13, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Uh, woe to you, Capernaum. Will you be lifted to the heavens? He says, no, you will go down to Hades. And these were the, these were the hometown of some of these guys. Like these were the people that looked like them and dressed like them and smelled like them, uh, even talked and voted like them. And Jesus was implying that they will be the ones that end up rejecting the teachings of Christ. And so let's now with a little bit of context, let's look at the story together. The, the scripture will be on the screen behind me. This is in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10. It says this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But... He wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said this, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and he, when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side... But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw them, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Well, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell to the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, 
the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, Rob Rob Bell talks about how most of us miss the point of the story of the Good Samaritan. First, he says that the the lawyer was a scripture expert. And that's uh, what they were in the first century. He was asking a question because he wasn't asking because he did not have an opinion about it. He, He was an expert in the law. He was asking the question because he had an opinion already. And that's what these guys did back then. They would discuss the opinions that they already had. And so his question wasn't, it was not so much for him as much as it was a way to see what Jesus had to say on the subject. And secondly, the question about eternal life is not a question about the afterlife. He wasn't asking what would happen after he dies. It wasn't something that most people in that time even talked about. It wasn't something Jesus even talked about very much. The focus of his question was not life or death but life before death. In other words, he was saying, how do I have the most, best, fullest life right now, Jesus? It's the same question you and I ask. It's a question that we should ask. It's the best question to ask Jesus. Like if you had one question to ask him, what would it be? Well, Jesus, how do I get the best out of this life? How does Jesus respond to the question? Well, The way any good teacher in that day or teachers now would respond to a question like that with another question. He says, well, how how does it teach you to live? You know, Jesus asked the lawyer, he says, how do you read the scriptures? Now, a quick side note for another time. But this this that short phrase, how do you read the scriptures? is huge. See, I grew up in a faith tradition that taught us never to question the Bible. The Bible says it, you just need to believe it, and that settles it. And my bet is that many of you grew up like that too. That there was only one way to interpret the Bible. It was the way your church did it, right? And so today, a part of progressive Christianity is returning to the scriptures with questions, and and people are nervous about that. And Jesus just suggested that, that there might be more than one way to interpret scripture. He says, how do you read it? And so when Jesus responds with a question, the lawyer, well, he's prepared for an answer. Again, this wasn't a question he didn't have an answer for. He had the opinion. He wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. So he's prepared. He quotes from the Hebrew Torah, Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He says, well, loving God and loving your neighbor are the most important things to do. And those are the ways that you can enter into full life, eternal life. And Jesus says, very good. Do this and you will live. Well, that should settle the conversation. That should be it, right? There's the answer. It's pretty simple. Love God and and love your neighbors. But because the Bible is open to interpretation, how do you read it? The conversation continued. It says the lawyer wanting to justify himself. He asked Jesus, well, well, Jesus, who is my neighbor then? And this is the real question that the lawyer was wanting to get to. You see, many of us, we look at our relationship with God as contractual, right? Like, you do this for me, and and then I will do this for you. But just this, no more, no more. If it's not in the contract, I won't do it. And so I'll come to church on Christmas and Easter and maybe even tailgate party Sunday. And I'll mention you to some of my family members, and I'll say a few words in your honor before each meal. But you, Jesus, you give me eternal security in heaven. 
And we look at this as a contract sometimes. That, and chances are oh, we are going to figure out, well, what's the least I can do to hold up my end of the contract, right? Like, what are my obligations in this relationship? What do I have to do? Or even better, how much can I not do it and still get paid at the end of the day, right? And so this guy wants to know, you know, who is my neighbor? Because I don't want to love everyone if I, ha- I don't have to. I just want to love my neighbor. And that's what the law required. So uh, that's in the contract, Jesus. So who's my neighbor? And again, this guy is not asking the question because he needs an answer. He, he, he already has an opinion about this. He just wants to know what Jesus has to say, right? He's like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, I know what the Torah says. But we both know, Jesus, that you and I, we don't agree on who our neighbor even is. And so, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And that's when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And he started off with a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he was attacked by robbers. And they stripped him of his clothes. And they beat him and went away. And leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, Jesus is a is a great storyteller. And he's, in fact, he's, he's pretty funny too. Like, and I've never noticed this before, but Jesus was kind of telling a joke here in this moment. It was an inside joke. You see, the road that led from Jerusalem to uh, Jericho uh, was probably just a couple feet wide, right? Not much unlike some of the trails around here where maybe you can go too wide mostly going down the trail. Like if someone were coming on a donkey, you would have to actually step off the path so that they could get by. And so the imagery of the priest crossing over to the other side would kind of be silly for that moment, right? Because the road wasn't developed until after 60 AD, and so it was underdeveloped at this time. But for me, hearing this story as a kid, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, well, I always thought of a full-size road, right? And crossing over to the other side made, made sense, right? There would be a difference. There would be space in between. If you see it as a trail or as a pathway... That is very narrow. It it, it kind of changes the scene, right? You know, like if the guy was laid out, beaten, left for dead, chances are that anyone who would have come by him would literally have to step over him to get out to 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 get past him, right? And so when we hear Jesus say he crossed to the other side, literally would have had to cross one step over to miss this guy. And it's similar to the story, if you're familiar with the rich man and Lazarus, right? Where Lazarus was a beggar who sat at the gate of the rich man. And the rich dude would actually literally have to step over him uh, every day to go anywhere. And and Jesus, so is he kind of exaggerating this point? He's he's kind of telling a, a joke here. And then he says, well, the Levite came along and the Levite does the same thing. And then a third guy comes along. Now, This is what makes Jesus' teachings so different. This was a very familiar story. Jesus didn't just make up this story, right? This was often a story that was told to teach people how to treat one another and how to help people in need. This was a very common story for a rabbi to teach. They're having a discussion about loving our neighbors. Well, what's what's an illustration that rabbis use? Well, here's a great one. Here's the story of the Samaritan. We know the story. It was a very relevant and appropriate story for this conversation. And so it would make sense now. And the lawyer would have expected Jesus to say, then this third guy comes along. He's a lawyer, right? The lawyer stops and helps the man in need. 
That would have made sense, right? That would have answered the question. Your neighbor, you're the lawyer. This is you in the story. Your, your neighbor is anyone you're passing by who is in need. You need to love that person, take care of that person, which is how most people would have told the story. It, it was told to me that way as a kid. It, it, in that story, when it's told that way, it, it didn't cause me to question the Bible. It made sense. It was clear. Christians are to help people in need. The characters in the story were, were of no significance other than sometimes we get so busy doing the Lord's work, priest and Levite, that we forget to care for the needy. So we need to love the needy. We need to practice roadside assistance, right? That's what Christians do. But I think if we stop there, if we don't critically engage Scripture, I believe that misses the point of Jesus' parable. Like, this is why Jesus, before he started teaching in the parables, he would say things like, those who have ears, let them hear. Those who have eyes, let them see. You see, Jesus and his teachings were a way of showing us how God is at work in the present reality when we don't even see it. And it was challenging, and they're meant to challenge us to engage our senses for the sake of the kingdom of God. Our, our sight and our ears, those senses. It, Jesus wants us to be awoken, to experience the kingdom of God around us. Like this was supposed to be transformative. Like lives were being changed when we live out the kingdom of God. But he says you'll need ears to hear and eyes to see. Well, most of us have ears and most of us have eyes. So what was he getting at? So what do ears to hear and eyes to see even mean, Jesus And he was talking about this process of developing our senses, right? Sight, hearing, taste, touch, smell. If you didn't know, newborn babies don't pop out the womb with fully developed senses, right? They don't really pop out the womb either, but I apologize for that. It was a very (laughs) dramatic thing. Um, But it's a process of developing those, right? The the ability to, to see and to touch and to taste and to smell and to even hear things. You know, when it comes to taste, we, we developed a taste for things. When I was born, I didn't just come out loving tacos, right? But I love tacos now, right? How many people love tacos? That's my favorite. I could, I've loved them for a long time, but I'm pretty sure I didn't always love them. There was a process, and they call that developing a palate, right? A palate for this. It is the only way, hear me out. This is the only way people who have ever enjoyed a real burger are able to walk up to a grill on tailgate party Sunday and look at that grill and see a real burger and see a veggie burger and choose the veggie burger, right? It's the only way to do that is to develop a palate, right? And to say something like, man, that tastes amazing, right? No, it's just you've developed a palate for it, right? See, no no one, hold on. No one in the, listen, listen. No one in their right mind would think that a veggie burger actually tastes like a real burger, right? Hold on, I'm not even there yet, right? Hold on. It took time and effort for you to trick your mind and your taste buds to enjoy that, right? Like if you eat paper long enough, you'll soon love the taste of paper. I'm just, right? You develop a palate for things. No, no one's, a, I, now, that being said, listen, I, let me finish my story. That being said, I, I do like veggie burgers, right? Derek, don't get mad, Derek. I know you love veggie stuff, man. I'm coming back around. I get you. Listen, Debbie makes an amazing black bean burger. And I, well, I love it. 
But I would never pretend that it's as good as a double cheeseburger all the way with slaw on the side from neighbors. I would never pretend that. And I love Debbie and she knows it. But you have to develop an, an ability to enjoy the taste of something like that. And by enjoy, I mean not spit it out. So the same is true for what Jesus teaches us in scripture. Get this. You and I, we have to develop our senses, our ability to see and hear what Jesus is saying. And it's supposed to be challenging. And some of us will reject it and possibly spit it out. And Peter Rollins says it's like this, that the power of the parables is this, that they challenge our beliefs, that they bring to the surface some very unpleasant truths. And when we do this, there's one or two, one or two ways around it. We can either, when we, when we read a parable, when we, our faith begins to be challenged, there's two ways. We can either defend it to the death, what we already believe. The Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. I'll die on this mountain. Or we can critically engage our beliefs that we're open to critique, to reflect on, and to even rethink what we thought we even knew. We have to get to the point to where we begin to critically engage our beliefs. And that's what we're trying to do here at the Grove. That we're challenging you to be thinkers. We don't ask you to check your brains at the door when you come in. We want you to be thinkers and questioners and doubters and skeptics and reflect on your beliefs and critique them and evaluate them and to rethink them. And we're going to give everyone here the room to do that. That this is going to be extremely uncomfortable for some of us. And you might not like it here a long time, right? And you will want to defend to the death and possibly, eventually, leave. But I'm asking you to stay. To see it through. To hold your beliefs with an open hand. Because we serve a God who is not confined to a box. And the parables that Jesus told would defy simple interpretations and meanings. That they would break open the box that we had God hiding in. And this is what I mean by box. We've talked about this before. That there are these boxes that come to us that we keep God and our faith in. And we have this beginning box, right? Where we call it order. This is like the foundations of our faith. Where in Sunday school we were taught these children's Bible stories. Maybe our parents taught us stories. These are the foundational pieces of our faith. And then there's this box called disorder. We begin to, to grow up and life happens, right? Uh, answers no longer work that we were given. Um, we had kids or we got married or there was death and, and, and things just don't make sense anymore. And there's this disorder. And we can either choose to engage uh, and, and lean into our faith and into God and ask questions and, and, and rethink and reread scripture. Or some of us just disengage faith and we're done with it. Well, I'm out of here. This doesn't make sense. This is stupid. This is a myth. I'm out. And then there's the third box is this last stage of our life. They call it, you know, reorder where we kind of reconstruct our faith, where we lean into it and we delve deeper into our faith and, and we rework things and we, we come back and we re-engage in our faith and, and, and we begin to uh, see with different eyes and hear with different ears. For instance, let me give you an example. Like, and this is just something that came to my mind earlier. It was the story of Jonah. You know, when we first listened to that story as a kid, the, the biggest 
issue in that story was, was it a whale or was it a fish, right? You know, what did they have back there? Did they know it was a whale that was a mammal or was it just a big thing out of the water? What, what is he really living in? Was it, you know, which one was it? And so we argue over if it's a whale or if it's a fish or what, you know, what, what does it say? We get to disorder, the next stage of our life, and we read that story again. We go, man, Jonah was a jerk, possibly even a racist, man. He didn't even want those people to know God. He was unwilling to know God, and he was kind of a snob and selfish, and he cried a lot, like about shade and sun and all this stuff like that. He was, you know, I don't like Jonah. Um, and then we got to reorder, and we begin to re- read that again with fresh eyes and fresh, fresh ears, and, and we go, well, it doesn't matter if it was a whale or a fish, and it doesn't make, make the point who Jonah was. It was the point was that God's grace was for everyone. And that's the story we need to tell, that we need to be able to share that grace with, with all people. Now, a box might not be the best metaphor. I blame Richard Rohr. That was his metaphor because ultimately God doesn't fit in a box, right? But we try, most of us, if we're honest, to have God in a box, to have our theology cleanly organized in a box and often taped up and sealed and, and never to open again. And it's very uncomfortable when we hear people talk about a God that doesn't sound like that God or look like him or her or smell or think like the God in our box. And so what box was Jesus breaking out of for this lawyer? What, what unpleasant truths was Jesus revealing for this guy? He says a third guy comes along. And it was a Samaritan. Now today, when you and I hear the, the phrase good Samaritan, it doesn't challenge our beliefs. It doesn't turn us off. There's no irony for us. But as many of you know, it wasn't the same for the lawyer in Jesus' time. Like it was the last character the lawyer would have expected to enter into this story. Jesus was a Jew. There's no way he even thought about Samaritans like way. So what's going on? The idea, the mere suggestion of a good Samaritan was impossible. Those people didn't even exist. The hatred between the Jew and the Samaritan ran deep. It was so much more than just a rivalry. And so you can imagine the impact it had when Jesus ends the story with the Samaritan being the hero. And to make it even worse, Jesus then asked the lawyer, well, so which one of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? And the tables get turned. It started with the lawyer asking Jesus a loaded question. I want to hear what Jesus has to say. And now Jesus returns the loaded question with this. And so it's a simple answer for us, right? The Samaritan, right? But look how the lawyer responds. In verse 37, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. The guy had so much disdain and hatred for Samaritans that he couldn't even say the name. It's like people you know who go through bad breakups or divorces. How often do you hear them refer to them by name? No, it's my ex, right? Why? Because names connect us. Names bind us together. There is intimacy that is created with our names. They're very important to us. We want people to know our name. So uh, we want to know other people's names. And how often do you resist going up to someone on uh, Sunday morning because you couldn't remember their name? Anyone confess? I I wanted to talk to them, but I don't know their name, and so I didn't go up to them. Those are important to us. I challenge you, find out today their name before you go home today, right? 
remember it. Names are important. But this lawyer, he can't even give the simple answer. Instead, he just says, the one. And here's the message of the parable. Jesus says, that one, that's your neighbor. That's the one you're called to love. That's where the eternal life is found. And showing kindness to the one you hate, the one you despise, the one you wish didn't exist, the one whose name you can't even say. Peter Rollins says, love God equals love neighbor. He says that the, those are the same things to Jesus. Like if you would see them coming down the, the street next to each other, you wouldn't know which one was which, right? That they were identical. Well, am I, am I loving God or, or am I loving neighbor? The answer is yes. When you love God, you're loving your neighbor. And when you love your neighbor, you're loving God. Love God, that was easy to accept. That Everyone accepted that idea. But loving others, loving your neighbor, loving your enemy, that was radical truth. He says that the parable is heard only when it changes one's social standing to the current reality, not one's mere reflection of it. What that means is that the parable, it goes unheard when all we do is reflect on what it said. But when we have ears to hear it and eyes to see it, when we critically engage our senses, we will respond appropriately to it by living out the kingdom of God and loving others. The word for listen in Hebrew was the Shema, to hear and respond. We are to respond to what we hear and live it out. We miss the point when we think the parable is about roadside assistance, right? Even though that is a good thing and, and it's a very loving thing, but Jesus is calling us to something bigger, something deeper. Jesus is calling us to love the people God loves which means everybody, even the ones you hate, even the ones you find the hardest to love, even the ones you can't even say their names. And so church, is there a person? Are there people? Is there a people group? Maybe you wouldn't say out loud that they're your enemy or that you hate them, but inside you might think of them that way. Deep down, you hold hatred and bitterness and resentment and anger, and you don't even know why. So let me ask you, what does this parable say to you? How, how do you read it? What is Jesus asking you here? Who is he asking you to love better? Now, there are some people that are toxic, and there are some toxic relationships and to say, stay healthy, you need to stay away from certain people to love them from a distance. But still, in that, we forgive so that hate and bitterness won't destroy us. You've heard it said before, but unforgiveness is like eating rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. Right? For you to eat the poison and to wait for the rat to die. I get it. It's not okay to poison rats. That's not humane. Spiders and fire ants. Okay, but rats, you know, but you get my point, right? You holding on to bitterness and hate and unforgiveness kills you, 
not them. So two choices we have when relationships are going bad. We can disengage. We can push away. We can pull back from that relationship. Or we can lean in. Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies. And prayer has this supernatural way of connecting us. When we name them and we lay their names before God and ask God to be with them, we begin to see them as God sees them. The beloved sons and daughters of Christ. And we begin to love them better because we know that God loves them too. And if you love God, and if you love Jesus, you love the people they loved. And when you love them, you're also loving God. And thus, fulfilling the reason you and I were created to love God and to love others. If you want to know how to get eternal life, to live life to the fullest, the more, the better, the right now, Jesus says, love your neighbor. Join me in prayer. God, thank you for today. God, thank you for giving us an example, to showing us what it looks like to live now in the kingdom of God. To not be all head focused on where it ends and who gets there, who's in, who's out. But to see everyone as created in the image of God. Beloved sons and daughters. So God, find us, search us where we've held on to unforgiveness, to bitterness, to hate. Where we've made enemies, where we've let rivalries become bigger than just sports and, and uh, competition. But where we've actually made lines and, 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 and brought war. It's okay for conflict. But war, the inability to have conflict. And so God, we need you in those moments when there is conflict to go to you, to pray, to, to lean in to those relationships, to draw near to you, to, to pray for our enemies. God, give us the power to do that. Give us the strength and courage to love our enemies. In your name we pray. 